From the English Standard Version, I'm reading Matthew 27, 11 through 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release you to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said, again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Well, a courtroom is supposed to be a place of justice. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. On the other side of our continent, about 13 miles northeast of Boston as the crow flies, settled in a small neighborhood is a very unassuming memorial called Proctor's Ledge. And this is believed to be the location where the victims of the infamous Salem witch trials were hanged. Many of you are familiar with the story of the Salem witch trials. Uh, between 1692 and 1693, Salem, Massachusetts, which ironically derives its name from the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace, was in mass hysteria. There were accusations and rumors of witchcraft everywhere. Almost 200 people were accused in just uh, about 13 months. And it became such a frenzy that there was actually a special court established specifically for the purpose of hearing and judging the cases of the accused witches. If you've studied history, it becomes increasingly clear as you read that what drove the trials was not logic, was not justice, or any sort of reasoned examination of evidence. It was fear and hysteria. And as a result, 19 innocent people were killed. The Salem witch trials stain our history with injustice, and Massachusetts and America have been trying to overcome it for a long time. 
Only 50 years after the event, still within living memory of many of the people who had experienced it, the General Court of Massachusetts actually called for a a statewide day of fasting and contemplation to remember the tragedy. And through one court decision or another, through the years, they have exonerated the victims. And it actually took until 2001 for all 19 victims to have their names cleared. Just last summer, on July 19th, it was the... uh, Uh, that memorial at Proctor's Ledge was erected to honor those 19 victims. It doesn't take any special legal training or experience to know that the Salem Witch Trials were unjust. They're infamous for their injustice. Now, courts, courts are supposed to be places of justice where innocent people are freed, criminals are convicted, and the truth prevails But unfortunately, you and I live in a world where that is not always the case. Now, of course, not every court gets it wrong every time. That would be insanity. That would be chaos. And we should be very thankful that not every court gets it wrong every time. But the reality is some courts do get it wrong. And the Salem Witch Trials are just one example out of thousands of a time when a court got it wrong. But never in history has a court been more wrong or a judge been more mistaken than the day when Pilate ordered Jesus to be crucified, than the day when a group of people decided to kill the author of life. Never has a greater injustice occurred. This morning we're looking at one of the very last events of Jesus' earthly life. This is the dawn of Good Friday or what we are now remembering as Good Friday. They didn't call it that back then, obviously. And Jesus stands on trial, being judged by the governor, Pontius Pilate. So, uh, Marianne read the text for us, but if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. It's also on your sermon insert in your folder, and that's where we're going to be pretty much all morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at four things the text shows us about Jesus. And then we'll look at what the crowd and Pilate decide to do with him. So first, first, uh, there's four things about Christ. The first one is, in verse 11, it says, Jesus stood before the governor. Now, (laughs) just think about the insanity of that statement for a second. Jesus stands before the governor to be judged. The utter humility of Christ is mind-boggling if you just contemplate for a moment with me. The majestic son of God, the man that the Bible tells us through whom and for whom all things were created. The man who had been transfigured on a mountaintop. The man who when he was born, angels appeared. The man who was when he was, when he was baptized, the clouds were parted and God audibly spoke, this is my son. The man who had raised several people from the dead. The man who had been lavishly anointed by Mary, the man who had ridden into Jerusalem, the man who had performed medical miracles beyond the healing powers of any doctor, past, present, or future, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the Son of Man and the Son of God himself, stands before a mere mortal, a man whose life is a vapor to be judged submitting to whatever decision this man will make. This is insane. What what could motivate God to lower himself to such a level? What, What is he thinking? 
Pilate has no idea who's standing before him. He has no clue. The only thing Pilate knows is what's been told to him by his guards and the accusers who bring Jesus. So the first thing to notice is just the humility of Christ, the fact that he's even here. The fact that he's even standing there is a humility, uh, is a very humbling thing. Second thing, the wisdom of Christ. Look at how he answers Pilate. Pilate asked the question based on these charges. So the accusers are bringing Jesus, and Pilate asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? Now, you need to understand, this is a serious question. It has pretty big ramifications. Pilate's not starting small talk here, like they're at some kind of Christmas party, each with a glass of eggnog in their hand, and Pilate's saying, so what do you do for work? Oh, you're a king, that's nice. You've been at that for a while? You married? You have kids? This is not chit-chat. This is not small talk. Pilate has been told that Jesus is a threat, that Jesus is claiming to be a king and that he is gathering uh, forces to overthrow Rome, to free the people from Roman rule. And Pilate's job is to crush those kinds of rebellion and to kill leaders of those rebellions. And so when he asks, are you the king of the Jews? That's a life and death question. And Jesus answers it here amazingly, but enigmatically. It's actually the same words that he said to Judas in the previous chapter. If you were here last week when Jesus ate uh, the last meal with his disciples, Judas asked, am I your betrayer? And Jesus literally says, you have said it. Not yes, not no. It's intentionally ambiguous and enigmatic. Now, some of your translations will try to solve that ambiguity for you. So if you've got the NIV like I do, which by and large I consider to be a trustworthy translation, so don't hear me saying you shouldn't be reading that version. I read it almost every day. But they translate it as Jesus saying, yes, it is as you say, straight up in the affirmative. Uh, But really, it's it's a little bit more wishy-washy than that, if you will. Not that Jesus is a wishy-washy person, but his answer is the best way for me to understand it, maybe this will be helpful for you, in our language, it would be as if Jesus said, those are your words. Not yes, not no. Think about, think about this, though. If Jesus had just straight up said yes, then Pilate would have been forced to conclude that he's guilty as charged, that he needs to be killed, that he is leading a rebellion, that he is everything that Pilate fears and everything the crowd says. But that's not who Jesus is, and that's clearly not how he answers. I mean, if you just see how Pilate treats Jesus the rest of the chapter, he clearly doesn't think that's who Jesus is. But Jesus also couldn't say no, because he is a king. He knows he's a king. And so to say no would have been a lie. Jesus is very aware of who he is, even if no one else is at that moment. He is completely aware of his own self-identity. Now this is interesting because Jesus, this is so typical of him. He continually refuses to let himself be defined by the misunderstandings of others. He's done it before and he's doing it again here. He's not letting Pilate's idea of what a king is, he's not letting the crowd's idea of what a king is define the king that he actually is. And so he answers with this, yes, it is as you say in the NIV, but really, you have said it. 
Now, if you were to read the Gospel of John, it actually has the same account, and it gives a little bit more detail of this conversation. And Jesus basically says, uh, I am a king, but not the kind that you think. My kingdom is not of this world. In fact, if it were, I wouldn't be standing before you right now. And so, based on what we know of the language and then what we see in John, we can walk away with Jesus saying basically to Pilate, yes, I'm a king, but not the way that you're thinking of a king. I'm a different kind of king. From Jesus' response, it becomes crystal clear to Pilate that he is no threat, that that the accusations hold no weight. And from here on out, Pilate, I mean, starting with the next verse, Pilate will start trying to get Jesus out of the pinch that he's in. So, the humility of his character. Second, the wisdom of his answer. Third, the trust in his father. Jesus got all these accusers. Look at verse 12. When he's accused by the chief priests and the elders, they're throwing out accusations. He gave no answer. There's all kinds of charges being thrown out, not just that he's a rebel, but all sorts of other ones. And it says in verse 12 that he gave no answer. And Pilate basically says, dude, don't you hear what they're saying? Say something. Defend yourself. Come on. These are serious charges. This carries a death sentence. Don't you have a defense? Verse 14, but Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge. His lips are zipped. He says nothing. And that is astonishing to Pilate. Jesus knows these crowds. He he knows this crowd. He knows that their mind is already made up. And as a reader of the book of Matthew, you actually already know that too. Up in verse chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse chapter 27, verse one, the beginning of this chapter, it says this. Uh, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. Their mind is already made up. This is not a trial. This is a hoop that they're jumping through. Jesus is aware of this. He's not wasting his breath answering these false charges. He knows that no one is listening. He's very aware of that, and he's not gonna trust Pilate. He's not trusting the system that he's in. He's trusting in someone else. One of the Old Testament prophets named Isaiah said a lot of things about the coming Messiah, but he saw this scene, and he describes it in chapter 53, verse seven. The the verse should be up on the screen. It says this, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. One of the marks of the coming king was his silence before his oppressors. His silence. Why is he silent? 1 Peter chapter 2. This one's also on the screen. Peter is drawing from the same book of Isaiah. He's looking back on the events of Jesus' life, and this is what he says. When they hurled their insults at him, right now, at this moment, and in other moments in, in Christ's trial, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead of opening his mouth, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is not trusting Pilate. He's not trusting the crowd. He's not trusting the system. He knows he's not going to get a fair shake here. He's aware of that. And so he doesn't say anything. And all of this blows Pilate away. 
It says it was to the great amazement of the governor. He's astonished. He's unexpectedly impressed. Because think about this for a moment. Pilate is probably used to, I mean, he's done cases before. He has sentenced men to death before. Okay? And he is probably used to men dropping on their knees, begging him for their lives, pleading their innocence, answering their accusers and saying, they're lying, I didn't do that, I didn't say that, or what I meant was this, trying to reduce their charges, trying to exonerate themselves, begging, losing all sense of dignity, weeping, crying. Pilate's used to that. He's not used to Jesus. <laughs> He's not used to someone just standing before him, calm and collected, impervious, it seems, to all the lies being told about him. This was actually one of the marks of many of the early Christians when the, first, when the church was first established. Many of Jesus' followers, including many of his apostles, would stand before death totally at peace, totally calm, and it was a it was a boggling thing to all of those oppressors. There's many accounts of, of oppressors, persecutors, who would kill Christians and then later become a Christian because the peace and the trust that those people showed. And it all starts here with Christ. He's trusting someone else. Pilate may be the governor, but Jesus is the master of these proceedings. Remember what he says in John 10. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I will take it up again. No one. Pilate's not doing this to me. I, I'm, I'm not being taken advantage of. I know what's happening. I'm in charge. Jesus has not lost control even for a second here. Now he's fully aware that he's not going to get justice. And so he submits himself to the will of his heavenly father, trusting that perfect justice will come, that the day of his vindication is not that day, but a future day, three days ahead. But for now, he stands silently. The humility in his character, the wisdom in his answer, the trust in his father, and the fourth thing, the testimony to his innocence. Okay, so I'm going to break the chronology here. We're going to jump later in the trial after Pilate has placed before them this decision. It's likely as the crowd is debating, as they're talking, as the, as the chief priests are trying to persuade everyone to get their way, Pilate gets a message from his wife. Now, just, just the circumstances tell you that she thinks this is a big deal. This is important. If, if your spouse has ever been in a really important meeting or having a really important discussion, you know that's not the time to send 12 texts to call, to call, to call, to call, to call, because you really need them to pick up a gallon of milk on the way home, right? <laughs> you don't do that for something trivial. You do that because someone's in the hospital. You do that because someone's been in a wreck. You do that because it's urgent, now, if your husband is the governor of a Roman province dealing with a very angry mob, when a man's life is in the balance and you send a message, it's an urgent message. And what does she say? Don't have anything to do with this guy. Leave him alone. He's innocent. He's innocent. How do I know? I've suffered greatly in a dream because of him. This only confirms what Pilate already believed about Jesus, that he was innocent. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of curious to know what that dream was. The Bible doesn't tell us. 
but it was probably pretty bad. Maybe it was a picture of hell. Maybe, maybe it was just her understanding reality of who Jesus was and what her husband was doing or was about to do. Maybe it was just a nightmare. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but whatever it was, it caused her suffering. I don't know if you've ever had the kind of dream where you wake up and you're still scared. She had that kind of dream. And it was enough to persuade her that Jesus was innocent and that she should do all that was in her power to get him off the hook. This dream is not a coincidence. There are many other times in scripture where God sends dreams even to people who have no idea who God even is, to direct them. So it's yet another witness, another testimony to Pilate that Jesus is innocent and righteous. And so you actually sort of start to empathize with Pilate a little bit. This just makes his decision at the end all the more wrong, given what he knows So here you have Jesus, the Son of God, standing before Pilate to be judged. He answers the governor in such a way to communicate that he is a king, but he's not a threat to to, um, Pilate, and he's not the kind of king that everybody thinks. He's silent before his accusers. He's trusting in the Lord, and there's this witness to his test to his innocence. All of this is convincing Pilate that Jesus is not the threat that his accusers say, and so he sees through their accusations. It says right there in the text that he saw it's because of envy that they handed him over. There's no weight to their charges. And so Pilate has this weird, uh, I don't know, tradition, custom, to let a prisoner go when it's the feast. And so he attempts to force the crowd's hand by making them a deal and what in his mind is a raw deal. He gives them what what in their mind is two bad decisions, either Barabbas or Jesus. So we've looked at Jesus, we know a lot more about Jesus, but let's look at Barabbas for a moment. In contrast to Jesus, Barabbas is not just accused, but he has been tried and convicted of the very things Jesus is accused of. Barabbas is a rebel, he did try to overthrow Rome. It tells us that in the Gospel of Mark. He has murdered people in order to push that agenda. This is a man with a proven track record of insubordination, of violence, and rebellion against Rome. This is the kind of guy that Pilate, his job is to kill that kind of person. And then you've got the track record of Jesus. No violence, no rebellion against Rome, but he does have claims to be a king, but we've already seen not the kind of king everyone thinks. And so he places before them these two guys. And it should be a black and white decision. I mean, it's obvious. It's obvious to Pilate, come on, this is a no-brainer. Because in Pilate's mind, even as bad as letting Jesus go would be for the crowd, letting Barabbas go would be even worse. But the crowd, they have lost all reason. They call for Barabbas. They call for Barabbas. As a reader, you, your mind, you're, you just, it should be blown. Your jaw should be dropping. You should be like, are you kidding me? They chose him? They chose Barabbas instead of Jesus? One commentator wrote it like this. They preferred the man of violence to the man of love. 
The Apostle John gives the reasoning in John chapter three. He says, light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. And when they see a confrontation to their evil deeds, when they see a confrontation to the darkness, like cockroaches, they scurry. They flee from the light. They fight against it. They choose to receive Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. And notice in verse 22 and 25, it is not just some of them. It is all of them. Verse 22, um, Pilate asks, what should I do then with Jesus who's called the Christ? If you're gonna take Barabbas back, what do you want me to do with Jesus? In verse 22, they all answered, crucify him. Verse 25, when after Pilate tries to um, abdicate his responsibility for the decision, all the people answered. This is not a vocal minority. Yes, the chief priest tried to persuade people, but everyone's mouth is open at that moment, calling for the death of Jesus and for the reception of Barabbas. His disciples have deserted him. Whoever was there when he rode into Jerusalem, if they're in this crowd at all, they've switched sides and they're not calling for his death. Jesus is entirely alone and the only two people in this whole thing who know that Jesus is innocent are two pagans who worship a sun god who don't even know the God of the Bible at all or even claim to know the God of the Bible and they realize Jesus is innocent. This is complete insanity. This is what sin does. You may have heard the term love makes the world go round. Well, sin makes the world go backwards. It turns everything upside down. It calls wrong right and it calls right wrong. It frees the guilty and it condemns the innocent. There is no order in this court. There's no reason examination of evidence. There's no facts. There's no justice. The only thing that's present here is the hysteria and chaos of the mob's anger and their envy. And they have chosen the tact of a toddler and just scream until they get what they want. Another commentator says they were not concerned with justice but with an execution. So with mounting force, the mob cries not just for the death of Christ, but for the crucifixion of Christ. No simple beheading will do. Let's shame him. Let's embarrass him. Let's make it painful and long and public so that everybody knows. Pilate's plan has backfired. And now he has a crucial decision to make. His job is to squash rebellion, to go for justice, That's a judge's job, is to bring justice. And he knows that Jesus is innocent. He is convinced of it. Now, we need to appreciate that Pilate is in a tough spot. He's got an angry mob on his hands. I don't know if you've ever seen an angry mob. I've seen one from a distance. And it was scary. I wouldn't want to be confronted by it. So he's got that pressure. He's got pressure from his higher-ups, making sure that he keeps the peace. He's got pressure from his wife, He's got pressure coming from all sorts of different angles. He's, he's in, he, whoever, whatever he decides to do here, he's going to make the wrong decision in somebody's mind. But he gives in to the crowd. Now, he attempts to say, it's not my fault. He attempts to wash his hands and say, I want you to know I'm condemning him to death, though I think he's innocent. <laughs> okay, that doesn't mean that you're innocent, Pilate. Okay, 
If you know that he's innocent, then regardless of the cost, you stand your ground. He is in a tough spot, but he's still a weak man. And so he decides to give the crowd what he wants. Now, unless Pilate repents after Jesus is raised from the dead, and maybe he did, we don't know. The Bible just doesn't say. That washing of the hands will do nothing for him on the day when he stands before God. Water cannot undo sin. It just can't. And so Jesus gets crucifixion while Barabbas walks. In all likelihood, the cross that Jesus was crucified on was prepared for Barabbas. And the two criminals next to him were in all likelihood Barabbas's accomplices. We don't know for sure the Bible doesn't make that explicit, but it's a very logical assumption. Each man walks away from this trial getting literally the exact opposite of what he deserves. So, what are we supposed to do with this? 2,000 years later, how do we as Christians understand this event? Is this a good thing? I mean, we call it Good Friday. The sign of our faith is a cross. It's the sign of his death. We say Jesus died for your sins. I mean, is this a good thing? Or is this a bad thing? An innocent man is killed and a guilty man walks away free. Why do we call this Good Friday? Well, the Bible doesn't just give us the event. It actually gives us the interpretation of the event. The Bible tells us how we're supposed to understand it. And there's lots of different places we could go here. Uh, But I'm going to go with Acts chapter 13. It will be on the screen as well. And just to set up the context, one of Jesus' later followers, his name is Paul, he's preaching to a group of people, to a group of Jewish people, and he is looking back on the life of Christ, and he's going to tell us what this event means. Now, before we start what's on the screen, let me give you just a bit of context on what he said. He has just finished making the point that God had promised thousands of years beforehand, a savior, and that that savior was going to come in the line of King David. And he's making the point that Jesus is that savior, okay? And so then the natural question in the minds of his audience is, well, if Jesus is that savior, why in the world did he die? That's the objection many Jews still have today to Jesus being the Messiah. Here's his answer, starting in verse 27. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. They didn't get him. They didn't understand him for who he was. See, that's the whole idea. They didn't understand that he was the, a different kind of king than they had thought. They didn't recognize Jesus. Yet, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. So without even knowing it, completely unaware, Pilate and the, Christ, or Pilate and the crowd are actually taking part in fulfilling prophecies made about Christ thousands of years beforehand. And this condemnation is actually a fulfillment of something. Verse 28, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence. So Paul's just saying, not that what they did was right. It was unjust. There was no ground. Just think about the trial for a moment. Was there any evidence for the accusations? None. In fact, there was evidence (laughs) for the opposite. There's no evidence for the ground, no ground for the death sentence. So what they did was not right. And just the fact that it fulfills a larger plan doesn't justify their actions. 
They weren't trying to fulfill anything. They are just trying to get Jesus killed. And so they asked Pilate to have him executed. Asked is a little bit of an understatement, don't you think? I mean, they pushed. Uh, when they had carried out all that was written about him, all the things that the prophets had written, they had written thousands of years beforehand. Isaiah, I, I mentioned 53 was part of that. There's many other places. They had written that Jesus had to suffer, had to die, that he was going to be rejected, that he was going to be a man familiar with suffering. So they carried out all that was written about him without even being aware of it, and they took him down from the tree, they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Amen? He raised him from the dead and for many days was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they, the people who saw him, they are now witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. This is his summarization point. This is the main point of what I'm telling you. What God promised to our fathers, that savior in the line of David, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. So the condemnation of Christ was the worst miscarriage of justice this world has ever seen. And yet, because it is inseparably connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's good. Not because their actions were good, but because God is so sovereign that he's able to direct even the most evil of human intentions and actions for his own good purposes. This event, and I, I agree that this is a paradox, this event which is paradoxically driven by the motives of jealousy and hatred and yet simultaneously at the exact same time being directed by the love of God, this event led to the death of Christ and that was the necessary sacrifice for your sin and for mine. See, you and I, we've all screwed up. We have sinned and separate ourselves from God. We've rebelled not just against an earthly ruler over us, we have rebelled against the creator, God. We have resisted his rule. And like Barabbas, you and I stand condemned, rightly, for our actions. And that's not just true of people whose lives look like that, whose lives are really messed up because of their own bad decisions. It's also true of those of us who are really good at wearing masks and trying to convince others or convince ourselves that we're not as bad as the Bible says we are. The truth is we're all condemned just like Barabbas. But the Bible tells us not only the event, not only the meaning of the event, it also tells us how we are supposed to respond to it. So Paul doesn't just tell them that, he tells them what to do with it. So going back to Acts 13, it should be up on the screen again. This is the end of his speech. This is his point. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know the reason this happened, the reason I'm telling you this, is that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Our job is to repent and believe. We are as guilty as Barabbas, but like Barabbas, we are offered freedom. When Jesus switched spots with Barabbas, what he did was he offered to switch spots with every single one of us. This is what Paul calls foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. 
This message makes no sense to people who don't understand it. That God, the transcendent creator God of the universe, would become a man. I'm not being derogatory against Muslims, but that's a very offensive thing for Muslims to think, that God would become a man. And not just a man, but he would, he would allow himself to be judged by an unjust court. They would allow himself to be killed, even killed on a cross. It's foolishness. It makes no sense to those who are perishing, the Bible says. But to those of us who believe, to those of us who are willing to admit our guilt, to those of us who are saying, yes, we are Barabbas and we need Jesus to switch spots with us, to those of us who believe we are sinners in need of a savior and Jesus is that savior, for those of us who believe that, this is the message of life. It is the wisdom and power of God and it is the source of everything we believe. It is the bedrock of our faith and we, will, we have to have it. It's not just it's not just that it's not foolishness. It's the exact opposite. It's wisdom. It's goodness. It's life. Because of what Jesus did, you and I get what we don't deserve. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So, for the Christians in this room, there are a handful of applications I could make at this moment. I could encourage you to be humble like Jesus was. I could encourage you to strive for the kind of wisdom that Jesus had. I could encourage you to trust in God even when things are really hard like Jesus did. I could encourage you to not be like the crowd who chose death over life, who didn't listen to the Son of God, who refused to read the scriptures and see what they actually said. And all of those would be good and biblical points and points that are made in other places of scripture. But I believe they would be peripheral to why Matthew and the other gospel writers tell us this message. I think we're supposed to know this, that God is sovereign, that this is not an accident. It's to show us the length to which God would go for you. I have nothing for you to do other than to reflect, to thank, and to worship to just look at what Christ has done and realize this wasn't an accident. He intentionally allowed this to happen because you needed a savior. And so as we approach Easter and we remember the death and resurrection of Christ, my prayer is that we would be renewed and refreshed by the good news of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, then like Paul earlier, I want you to believe. Like Barabbas, you stand condemned. And that may be an offensive message to you. That may be foolishness. But it's true. And we need a Savior. We all need a Savior. So I implore to you, Christ has come. He's the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And so put your faith in him. Trust him. Become his follower. Maybe this morning it's time for you to take that step to walk out of the cell like Barabbas and to let Jesus take your place. Not because of anything good that you've done, but all because God did it for you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this message. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending your son that you so loved the world, that you so loved us, that you sent your son to die for us. 
and not just to die, but to come alive again. God, thank you that while we were still sinners, while we were the ones crying out, crucify him, crucify him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord. And thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life willingly. You were not forced to do it by God. You didn't do it against your will. Lord, you said yourself that you lay down your life and no one takes it from you, and we thank you for that. As we approach Easter, would you please work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we might be refreshed, be renewed, to really worship. In Jesus' name, amen.